Hello, I'm Reggie Yates, and welcome to The Road Less Traveled, an original podcast series created by Bellstar. And I always made the films the way I wanted to make the films. And I wanted to tell stories the way I wanted to tell them. And I really love doing it because it uses every single part of you. It uses you visually, it uses you physically, it uses everything you know about acting and music and rhythm and everything. It's the most exciting and satisfying thing I've ever done is to direct. I can't wait to do it again. In this podcast, I talk to successful people in the public eye about risk-taking, confounding expectations, and the choices they've made that have led them to the place they are now. Today, my guest is a huge star, an actor and director who made his debut in Prizzy's Honor back in 1985 and has never stopped working since. He's one of the few actors who's equally at home doing comedy or drama. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance as the child killer in The Lovely Bones, but one of his best-known roles was a seriously put-upon Nigel in The Devil Wears Prada. He is Stanley Tucci. I'm so glad that you're, you're, you're here to chat to me, and I'm really glad that you're living in London, because in my humble opinion, it's the greatest city in the world. Uh, I agree. I didn't expect you to say that. No, I really do agree. Why have you, why have you picked London as your city? Why have you made it over here? Well, my, my, I got remarried about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And my, my wife had come to live with me and the kids um, in America for two years. My first wife died 10 years ago. And then I met my current wife at her sister's wedding. Yeah. You know, like a year and a half later or something. And then we started dating. And then she came and lived with us. And then, and then we got married here. And then we just moved here. Please tell me you guys met on the dance floor. Because I love the idea of you doing the agadu and giving somebody the eye. That sounded really dirty. I don't know what really <laughs> any of that meant. <laughs> we met, actually, well, yeah, we really started talking on the boat. Right. The wedding was at Lake Como. Okay. I think we might have danced on the boat. That's good. Yeah, I think we, actually, I think we did dance on the boat. So the difficult thing about dancing on a boat, and my friends are going to absolutely piss themselves yeah. that I had that sentence to say, because yeah. I shouldn't know what comes after that. Yeah. The difficult thing about dancing on a boat is it when is. you get on one, they make you take your shoes off. And so dancing on a boat isn't oh. easy, particularly if you are into doing Michael Jackson-esque moves. Yeah. And you can't help but slide and glide and look like an idiot. So, yeah, um, I didn't do those. You, okay. No. And she married you. She married me anyway. <laughs> So it worked out. (laughs) No, it's pretty great here. I mean, Londoners will complain about the mass transportation system and so on, but you have no idea compared to New York. I mean, this is like like heaven. Yeah. I I really want to delve into New York because there's lots that I have to ask you about Mm. it. But before we get to where it is that you're from originally, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how uh, performance and acting actually found you. When I was a kid in um, elementary school, I had this teacher who... He had done off-Broadway, off-off-off-off-off-Broadway shows. And I remember doing a play in the fifth grade or something like that. Mm. So I was probably about... Ten? Ten, nine, ten, something like that. And I remember going up on stage, and I suddenly felt really comfortable. Like, I felt much more comfortable than I did in my real life. And that sort of still holds true today. Like, I knew exactly what to do. I just knew that that's what I was supposed to do. And then in high school, I had written a a sketch for a variety show that we were doing. And we had this great teacher who did the, ran the choir and did plays. And anyway, so I auditioned for him and I saw his eyes sort of light up when I, and then I just started doing plays. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, Every time I've asked that question, uh, a teacher always comes up. Yeah. Uh, And the importance of teachers Mm. is, 
a huge defining corner of my journey and of my story. Yeah. Um, why do you think they're sort of neglected and not spoken about in the light that you've just spoken about your teacher? I have no idea. I don't understand why teachers... My dad was a teacher. My dad was an art teacher. First of all, they should be paid at least twice as much as they're being paid. Yeah. Your children spend a lot of times more time in school than they do at home. Mm -hmm. um, those teachers are going to shape their lives significantly. It, to me, it's one of the most honorable professions Absolutely. ever. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that your father was a teacher. Yeah. You did the dangerous thing that mm. most, well, any, any young man that has decided to pick a career that isn't the same as their father, mm. it's dangerous because you break your dad's heart in some way, whether they want to admit it or not. Yeah. So what made you choose that path that is so different to the one that had been laid in front of you by your parents? Well, I think, like I said, it just felt comfortable t to me. Mm. But I guess in, in, in the same way, it is different than what my dad did, but it, it's also the same because it's a form of artistic expression. You think teaching is? Absolutely, because he's an artist. I mean, he would teach people how to make art during the day, and he would come home and make it himself at night. And he could do everything, my dad. I mean, he, he painted, he sculpted, he did um, uh, jewelry making, calligraphy, mm. woodworking, he taught mechanical drawing. I mean, he could kind of do everything. Yeah. But so to me, it was, in a way, the same thing. Right. That I, I find there are great similarities between visual art and acting, performing, directing. Mm. I spent a lot of time myself drawing and, and painting. But I also spend a lot of time reading about artists. I'll read about artists more than I'll ever read about actors or directors. Is that because you're interested in their path to creation? Yes. It, it's about, it's, the creative process is the thing that really interests me, whether it's a musician or a painter. But I mean, I made a movie about it a few years ago about Alberto Giacometti. In 2017? Yeah. To me, this book that was written about him called... Um, a Giacometti portrait was the most beautifully written book about the creative process. And mm -hmm. I tell young actors that they should read that book because almost more than any other book, it will influence them. I've spoken quite a lot recently uh, <clears throat> about influence and also about being honest with yourself because mm -hmm. I realized quite a few years ago that I wasn't meant to be an actor. I found myself continuously being given scripts where the role that I was reading for was a caricature or a stereotype and it was the same thing and the point when I got asked to read for the role Nathan for the fourth time I realized that I probably shouldn't be doing this and I don't know if I care enough to keep going to search for the work and fortunately I found another way to yeah. tell my story and to, yeah. and to do it now for somebody like yourself your relationship with your heritage is one that I'm dying mm. to understand a little mm. bit better in terms of what it is you've done on screen because being a, a person of colour mm. for the longest time has been a difficult thing in terms of finding the work that feels fulfilling. Mm. Now, as an Italian man, an Italian-American, mm. there are three or four tropes that jump to mind the minute you speak about Italian-Americans on screen. Mm -hmm. How have you avoided those tropes? I haven't avoided... Well, I've avoided them. Longevity has uh, allowed me to avoid them or leave them behind. Right. When I first started out, I was always cast as the mafioso. And if you're not the mafioso, you're going up for the role of the bad guy, the villain, the punk on the street or whatever, you know. Um, you sound like you, you speak of it with a real fond glint. Yeah, eye, yeah. A twinkle in your yeah, eye. Yeah, yeah. And it was really... Uh, things have changed now, I think, for the better. 
But <clears throat> whenever Italian-Americans were portrayed in film uh, or on television, they were always, not, not almost, they were actually always portrayed as innately corrupt or innately evil. Mm-hmm. Even if you were like a teacher or something or a doctor, the doctor was always, and he was Italian, the doctor was always doing something wrong. Do you know what I mean? Or he was connected to the mafia or whatever. And there did come a point where I had done a lot of sort of mafiosi things and whatever. And I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I didn't. And I turned them all down for a period of 10 years because it's not like I could have could afford to turn them down either, but I had to. And then when Sam Mendes did um, The Road to Perdition, it was so beautifully written. And also everybody was bad in the movie, which I liked, that I was more than happy. So where does that do leave it. you in, in terms of your relationship with... Um some of those iconic roles that fit into that genre, because everybody cites The Godfather as yeah, reference. Yeah, but those, but you see, but those movies are—they're brilliant movies, and those are completely full and rich characters. Uh, basically, ninety percent of those kinds of movies are caricatures. They don't have the depth of The Godfather. They don't have the depth of Goodfellas mm-hmm. or Mean Streets. Or I mean, those are completely believable and real people. They're not caricatures yeah but it is cha- it is changing now it has changed significantly i mean now you'll see characters with italian surnames uh who are teachers who are doctors who are secretaries who are whatever and they just have an italian surname mm. and that's a really nice thing we finally finally i suppose we've assimilated <laughs> <laughs> uh, taking that decade uh, away from those kinds of roles yeah um, I imagine put you in a place where you're doing work that maybe you never thought that you would be asked to do. Um, yeah, or stuff that you'd hoped you'd do and you were finally able to get it. I think being able to do comic roles made a difference. And then also being able to do accents, being able to sort of change yourself. Yes. That makes a big difference. How did comedy change things for you? When you make people laugh, they'll follow you anywhere. That made a huge difference for audiences, but also for producers and directors. They were like, oh, yeah, well, he's, he can be funny, and he can do a Hispanic accent, or he can do blah, 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 or he can do this, he can do that, and he can do that. And so you, you were never categorized. Yes. You know? And being funny is arguably harder. Um, and well, I think people... Without question. Yeah. Yeah. And people sort of don't really give uh, funny people the credit that they deserve. No. To be funny, it's one of the hardest things. If, if my son were to come to me and say, I want to be a clown... I would say, could you please pick an easier profession? Not because, yes, I, you know, I don't want you to run away to the circuit. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, do you really, do you know how fucking hard it is to make people laugh? <laughs> yeah. See, on the other end of the spectrum, though, you've executed roles in incredibly difficult scripts and been lauded for it. Um, when you think of something like Lovely Bones, for oh, instance, yeah. that got you an Academy Award nomination, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the role that you played was incredibly difficult. It was a child killer. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. And um, the, the film I'm about to mention isn't the best movie in the world, and it didn't win a million awards, but the performance has stayed with me since seeing it. And I'm talking about Kevin Bacon in The Woodsman. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in that film, he plays a pedophile. Mm. And when you start watching the film, and if you come to it without knowing what his crime is, mm. you feel empathy for this person. Mm-hmm. And then when you find out what his crime is and you realize you've been watching him stood outside playgrounds Mm. for half of the movie, Mm. it completely messes with you as a viewer in terms of the empathy you have for this person who's just come out of jail. Right. How do you as an actor 
find empathy for a character that is doing the unthinkable? First of all, it has to be well written. Again, it can't be a caricature and it can't be gratuitous. Yeah. It can't be like, oh, this is a horror film or this is a thriller and he's the... Cause it, it has to be a real... He has to be a real person, a full person. And that's what you attach yourself to. Many years ago, I played Adolf Eichmann in this thing for HBO called Conspiracy about the Nazis and the meeting they had at Wannsee to decide on the final solution. It was a very hard thing to do because Eichmann was sort of like an automaton in a way. But he was a person. And all of those people sitting around the table, and people will say, well, they were monsters. But they weren't monsters. I mean, the thing that makes it really horrific is that they were people. And that's what you have to find. Doing the Eichmann thing, there were accounts of the Israeli spies who caught him. And one of them had a long conversation with him. And he said, what about children? What about all the children you sent away? And he said, you don't like children. He said, I love children. And Eichmann started to cry. He says, I, lo I love children. He says, yeah, but all those children you sent to, sent to their deaths. And Eichmann said, yeah, but, but they were Jews. So there's clearly this disconnect. That's an understatement. <laughs> but he was human in his feeling for children or his children. I mean, it, so those are the little things you have to attach yourself to. Right. With Mr. Harvey... It was hard, I, I must admit, it was hard. But you have to find the humanity that's in there somewhere. And then you just have to play it straight. You can't be twirling your mustache and you can't be doing all that. You know, He has to be, to me, the goal was to be as completely, uh, as innocuous as possible. Mm. What are those conversations with your team like when uh, an opportunity like that presents itself in your team? I imagine they're probably thinking, is this going to be good for him? Yeah, I know. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been desperate to do a project and they've just said no? Yeah, there, there have been times where they go like, are you sure you want to? And I go, no, I, I think I know how to do this. Hmm. I can do this. Well, it was interesting, that one, I mean, I, I think everybody wanted me to do it because it really was a great role and and it was Peter and, you know, it was a big movie. And But my late wife, she she had read the book and she goes, you, you can't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Ugh, yeah, I know. And then I read it, and the script was so beautiful. And I thought that the story was a really important story to tell. I thought Then I thought, okay, I know how to do this. I actually tried to talk myself out of the job, though, at the beginning. When I had a conference thing with Peter, because he was in New Zealand. and Jackson. And, uh, Peter Jackson. And I, I, said, I said, why are you asking me to do this? I don't see myself as this. Mm. I don't know. And I was suggesting other actors, which was ridiculous. <laughs> In the and, meeting with the director. Yeah. And I said, why me? And he goes, and this is interesting to go back to what we were talking about. He goes, because you're funny. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah. I think we need somebody who's who has a really good sense of humor to play this role. Did he explain? Not really. <laughs> Okay, so, so <laughs> what, do you, what do you think he meant by that? I think I he, could assume. Yeah, but. I think what he meant was a sense of irony. If you were to wear that character too seriously, you would kill it in right. a way. Do okay. you know what I mean? Okay, it, it would all be too obvious and too heavy-handed. Uh, you you said that uh, you spent ten years saying no to a very specific kind of role, which I I admire greatly, and that must have taken a lot of resolve. You can tell a lot about a person when you know what they've said no to, mm. particularly when it comes to your career choice. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what are some of the things you said no to? I don't say no to a lot. <laughs> I, no, I will say I've said no to other things that have come my way since the Lovely Bones that are sort of like, oh, he's a serial killer or oh, he's a child molester. Because fear of repeating? Or yeah, I just you, don't want to do it again. It's going to that place. Yeah, I don't want it. Yeah, it's too awful. Right. And also, they weren't well written. I've said no to sort of bigger commitments of television things because I'm wary of being trapped in something. But you did TV. Oh, you yeah, were in tons one, of TV. Lots of TV. You were in one of my favorite sitcoms. You were in Frasier. Oh my God, I was a voice, wasn't I? On the on the radio. Was I? Yes. Oh Jesus, yeah. <laughs> I just can't remember. But they are, well, they were two very distinct, different paths. Uh, yeah. And some people sort of decided... Yeah. This is the world that I exist in, whereas yeah. others were film. That's my that's right. my world. And now it's not like that. Ooh, Meryl Streep's on HBO. I love it. it. It's it's the greatest thing ever. And HBO really started all that. I Absolutely. mean, it started with them. And I always did TV because I had to work. I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. You know, people people would be like, "Well, no, I don't want to do TV." I was like, "All right, yeah. Well, I'm sure you don't, but I have to do it." You mm. know, and I was able to go back and forth. But if something came along in TV that was right. Or that paid well, you go, okay, I can do it, I can get in, I can get out, and it'll be fine. And a lot of times, those experiences were wonderful experiences. You can't say that the product was always like some amazing thing, but the same goes for film, too. People go, oh, I'm only going to do film. And they do a lot of films, and then a lot of those films are just terrible. Yeah. You know, and they bomb. To me, I always felt that it was to be able to bounce back and forth between television, film, and theater was really important. But the thing is, in this country, British actors always did that. And in America, it was very sort of segregated. Mm. And then it wasn't until, like I said, until HBO, that started to change things. And then with cable and now, obviously, with all the different, you know, formats that are out there. I mean, I just did a show for Facebook. I was like, what? Right. I don't even know. What are you talking about, Facebook? How is that possible? so small and they were like no they're quite, starting quite their own platform and they're doing this whole thing like hulu and you know this thing came to me it was absolutely beautifully written mm -hmm. a series so Be for you, beautiful it, it'll always come down to the writing it always comes down to that yeah mm -hmm. yeah if it's good if it's something you haven't done before and of course you have to you know any actor who says i've never done it for the money i've never done the thing for them, it's just complete bullshit you know it's like saying i hate when i'm re being recognized it's like saying yeah right yeah okay it's annoying it can be <laughs> annoying but you don't really hate it where was know? the most awkward place that you've been recognized oh when you go into like a public toilet like you were going to the movies or something mm. and then people are in there and you're you know at the as you say urinal mm -hmm. and the guy looks over and he goes hey how you doing you're like jesus and then, <laughs> then they never look at me. They go, can I take a picture? And you're like, of? <laughs> I don't think so, you know? I'm like, N not here. Yeah, this, you know? this isn't not a good here. time. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's a pleasure to meet you. You know, yeah. I, what do you say, you know? Yeah, wash your hands first. Yeah. How about <laughs> Please, that? Please, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you, you talk about all of these uh, different places that you found a home as a performer from stage to screen to, to the small screen. Yeah. Um, but what you've done... Uh, on screen is is incredible because you found very different ways to express yourself, be that in comedy or in drama. But yeah. also, I've loved some of the bigger comedic performances that you've given. Oh, good. Because subtlety is my preference. Yeah. I prefer things underplayed. Yeah, me too. But sometimes the complete opposite of that 
works. Like, I love the birdcage. I shouldn't oh, love the birdcage. Fantastic. But Robin Williams, I don't think, could be bigger no. than he is in that film. No. And Nathan is... I mean, that's an incredible performance. It's, it just, it's exhausting and watching it's huge. them. Yeah. It's um, huge. And uh, you could argue that you're pretty huge in The Hunger Games. Oh my God, huge. <laughs> huge, ridiculous. But the guy, the guy is big. So to me, it all boils down, like I love farce. I love really broad mm. comedy. However, if it's not real, it's not funny. So the thing about farce to me is that there's a logic to it. Once it isn't logical, it, it doesn't become funny anymore. You can take any performance in any genre, and all you have to do is just pop it up, just modulate it, so that the thing is still real. It's still based in reality. You're just doing it a little bit bigger. That's all. But if you do it a little bit bigger and you lose the reality, it's not funny. That's a, those are genres all unto themselves. I don't even know what they are. I don't know what they are. They're not, I don't even, are they movies? I don't know. All I know is I cry with laughter. Yeah. You know, when you're trapped in your trailer waiting for someone to make a decision about something. Yeah. I just go and watch Will Ferrell, like, Anchorman outtakes or something, you know. Do you watch Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? No, I haven't. I've never seen that. Okay, yes, yeah, is Seinfeld that the one that Jerry show. Seinfeld did? It yeah. is, and it's how is it? It's fantastic. It's one of the best interview series out there, and I, I mention it because he does an episode with mine, Short, and it's just <laughs> you're laughing already, or you're choking. <laughs> I'm we, actually joking. <laughs> went down the road. Do you need a Heimlich? No, I'm okay. Do we kill? We killed Stanley Tucci. <laughs> we, have we killed him? The Heimlich gets gets. <laughs> Should we get the? Who sounds like you're going to bring in? It's like a German guy. <laughs> A big, sturdy yeah, yeah. German guy gets called a Heim Heimlich. Gets a Heimlich. Here he is. He's massive. He's massive. Man, it's huge. <laughs> Actually, my sternum. I have to ask, when it comes to roles that you have said no to, we've kind of covered that. Mm. But I'd love to know the roles that you wish that you'd got. Have you ever cast for anything and not got it and watched it and thought, oh, I, would, I would have killed that? Yeah, yeah. I probably have blocked it all out now. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because it was so disappointing. <laughs> yeah. um, How do you deal with that, though? How do you manage that, not getting something that you really want and then seeing Tom Cruise do it? <laughs> well, that's never happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, we're, we're hardly in the same league. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, there, there were a couple of things, and I was sad about it. But, you know, you just kind of move on. You just keep going. And I do believe... That it, these things happen, it happens for a reason. Yeah. You know, there's something else around the corner that's that's better or better, really better for you or you really weren't supposed to get that thing. Right. Absolutely. Like there was a, this wonderful movie that Ryan Reynolds made a long time ago with um, Sandra Bullock, um, The Proposal, which is one of my favorite movies. Of, I love that movie. That's like the broadest comedy I know. ever. The, the I know. premise is he's her assistant I know. It's and ridiculous. he has to pretend that they're engaged because yeah. she's going back to see the family? Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. Or no, no, because is it a reunion? She needs a visa or something, right? Something right? Like Isn't, that. Yeah, that's what it is. Hang on a second. And, and this is one of your favorite films? I love it. I love it. And when what? I read the script, I really loved it. And, and Ryan is a very good friend of mine. Right. And my my kids just love it. My daughters are like just in love with it. We've seen it like 40 times, you know. But it really is a very funny fucking movie. Like it's really well done. Yeah. And she had talked to me about directing it. And I read it and I was like, mm, I don't think, I don't know, maybe blah, blah, blah. And then 
somebody has said, or I think Ryan or somebody has said, oh, it's too bad you didn't direct it. It would have been a blah, blah, blah. You know, it would have been a big hit or whatever. And I'm like, no, actually, I don't think so. I think I would have ruined that movie. I think whoever directed it, I don't even know who directed it. It, it. To me, it's like a perfect Hollywood movie. I never would have been able to do that. Because that's not the it? way I... I don't think I would have been able to shoot it in the way that it needed to be shot. I think I would have tried to maybe be too arty with it or something. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I just... I mean, if you look at something like The Devil Wears Prada, which is probably the perfect Hollywood movie, I can't imagine anybody else directing that movie besides David Frankel. It's perfect. I mean, there's not like a bad note in it. Uh, and it bridges the gap between something that's quite moving and dramatic and perfect Hollywood, you know. Yeah. And it's a huge movie. It's a huge hit. It's huge. A, a film that still gets shown to this day. Huge. And um, I imagine for somebody like yourself who... I'd call a character actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I always thought was redundant, but yes. Yeah. 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 No, I know. But, but uh, yes, I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, uh, the character that you play in that, I imagine, is one that you get stopped for oh, yeah. to this day. Mm -hmm. um, how does it feel being bound to a, a character or a person that you've created that is in the past for you, that you've moved on from? I don't, I don't mind sometimes, and particularly that one, because I was very proud of it. I was very proud to be in the movie and, and proud of the playing that character and it was really nice because the gay community really embraced the performance mm. that was that was the greatest compliment to me to have gay men come up to you and go thank you for doing that thank you for not make you know making it sort of cliched and making it whatever making it real and that was really great. And it was the thing is, it was so beautifully written, though. It was like, it was so easy, in a way. I was given the script, like, literally, like, three days before I started shooting. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult line to tread yeah. um, when you are playing a gay character, I imagine. Yeah. Because there are so many things that you could get wrong. Yeah. And also, so many people hoping that the representation on screen yeah. speaks to their existence. Yeah. How did you do that with three days? I don't know. I don't know. It was, like I said, it was on the page, and to me, you just you just don't go too far with it, you know. And gay friends and gay relatives, and you know, you you're, you're a sponge. You don't even know that you're a sponge. You're just picking this stuff up. Yeah. And suddenly, there was this one guy that I knew, who who had died uh, a while ago, and I, every time I looked at the at the paper, I kept seeing him, and hearing him, and so it was sort of based on him. I don't think he ever knew it, but mm. yeah. That must be quite a nice thing to know that that's forever locked on screen, this yeah. memory that you have of a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you've mentioned your children, your girls, uh, mm -hmm. a couple of times now. Mm -hmm. I imagine your relationship with them must influence the man that you are on screen and maybe some of your choices as well. Um, mm. How has your role as a father and your relationship with your kids changed the decisions that you make? Well, I stopped doing pornography. I'm kidding. I uh, I was going to say, terrible I did, joke. I recognize you from something other than <laughs> what was on your IMDb. I recognized you from the waist down. Um, <laughs> I've seen those calves. I, <laughs> I, one of the things that I really love to do and I'm most excited to do are movies the kids can watch. Like my little kids now don't know what I, my four and a half year old, he has no idea what I, what I do. He has no idea. But it's really, that's the stuff that, for me, is important. Not every movie you make can be spotlight. This movie I did that Tom McCarthy directed about the... Never heard you know, of it. <laughs> never heard of it, yeah. 
not every movie can be that. Some movies are just entertainment. Some movies are, you know, more adult than others and extremely violent. And then you have The Lovely Bones, which is weird. It's like, should you do that? Should you not do that? But it's a really important story, so... But how do you jump from those worlds? Like, how are you able to go from space chimps mm. to, <laughs> <laughs> to to Spotlight? Because Spotlight was uh, it was a, a massive Oscar movie, yeah. critically acclaimed, mm. and Space Chimps was for kids. Yeah. How do you do both? Because I'm a kid. Because we're all kids, and you're just pretending. You're just pretending to be the whatever I did in Space Chimps to pretending to be Mitchell Garabedian in. Spotlight. It's just pretend. It's just like being a kid again. Being a kid uh, for me is a massive part of how I navigate uh, the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, the the desire and need to play in every situation yeah. is a huge part of how I get through my day right. because I haven't really grown up. If I'm honest, um, <laughs> how much? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't really grow up. Uh, explain. You know. Well, I just think keeping that. Not childishness, but childlike quality is absolutely crucial to anybody in the arts. It's absolutely a huge part of what you need. But also, I just think for anybody to have a childlike quality is really important. It just makes life more fun. To be able to play and to make jokes and to go back to what we talked about before, have a sense of irony. That's the most wonderful thing in the world. And that's what kids have. Mm. And... And we lose it. Uh, America has lost it. Most of America has completely lost their sense of irony and sense of humor. I'd argue that that has a huge uh, thing to do with the fact that you now live in the UK. So you can probably see it in a much clearer way. Yeah. So uh, looking at America through sort of British-tinted glasses, Mm. what do you see? It's not good. It's not good what I see. It's really bad what I see. I see a loss of a sense of irony. Um a loss of a sense of humor. And that's what happens under under fascist regimes and dictatorships. I'm not saying that that's what it is, but there are those colors in there, hmm. right? I, I wouldn't disagree. Yeah. Um, but I'm in the <clears> middle <throat> of one, 20% into a project that's going to take about a year, my first feature film, oh which my is God. something that you've done as a writer-director yeah. as well. Yeah. And that project... Um, was described to me as a mountain that you've you've got to climb. Yeah. And that starts when you start writing yeah. the screenplay. Yeah. And oh my God, is it a mountain? But it's, it's huge. It's the most fulfilling process that I've yeah. been through yeah. in, in forever. But you've gone through that, that yeah. first film thing, and you've made yeah. movies since, yeah. um, which means it went well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for you, what is it about that process that got you to the second film? Because you had a successful career as an actor prior to becoming... Yeah, yeah. I think I think I just wasn't satisfied just acting. I started to see the whole picture, and I wanted to tell stories the way I wanted to tell them. I wanted there to be ambiguous endings or sad endings. I wanted to shoot things in a way that, in a not Hollywood-like way, let's say. But and if I failed, at least it was my failure. Do you know what I mean? And I always made the films the way I wanted to make the films. And I really love doing it because it it uses every single part of you. It uses you visually, it uses you physically, it uses everything you know about acting. It's the most exciting and satisfying thing I've ever done is to direct. I can't wait to do it again. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I had a, a taste of that when I started making short films. Mm. And the thing that was really fulfilling for me was having a kernel of an idea mm. and then six months later being in a sound mix. And so cool. Thinking about the amount of people that have been involved yeah. in making your idea a real thing. Yeah. Um, doing that over a feature length for you for the first time mm. must have been a revelation. What it was it was. like when you, um, when you screened it for the first time? It was so exciting. It was so exciting. Yeah. I couldn't believe we had done it. And I had a co-director who was a friend of mine, and that was very helpful because I was also in the film, so yes. I needed somebody to, to do that. It's just the most thrilling thing ever. And then it was very successful, and, you know, we uh, you know, opened it at Sundance, and it was just, it was like a dream, you yeah. know. I love doing it. I imagine with the, the success of your film in 2017, you've had offers to direct again. I have, I have, but I, I've come close to saying yes to some stuff, but I... I I really am, I guess, like a kind of a control freak when it comes to... I really just kind of want to tell the stories that I want to tell. You've just described something that is what I think any creative is striving for, which is to be in a position where you're doing the work that you really want to do. Yeah. And it feels and sounds like, given our conversation, it's been a real journey to get to this point where yeah. you're able to say, I want to go that way versus right. that way. Right. And this is the thing that really drives me. Right. right. Um, yeah, if I had my way, I would just direct really yeah i would yeah because the acting you know i was talking with a friend of mine last night and he's about 10 years younger than i am and he goes god i just feel <laughs> i feel like when i'm on a set like he goes i just want to go home i just want to go home and be with my kids i just want to you know he goes i feel like i've done these scenes before i feel like i've done that day um which is one of the reasons when i direct i'm like okay we're doing continuous days we're going to start shooting at 9 30 in the morning we're going to be done by four in the afternoon because I, I can't stand waiting yes you know for better or for worse i can't stand God, it. the crew must love you they love me yeah they're so happy right i'm like okay we're done they're like what do you mean we're done i said we shot seven pages we're done let's get out of here what's your first on, day cocktail hour you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's your first day speech like oh i just say you know let's just have a good time and and let's make sure that everybody communicates. That's the most important thing to me, is that people are always communicating. Mm. And, I, and I only hire nice people who are talented. If, if, I, if I hear that somebody has a reputation of being whatever, and that goes for actors too, mm. and the guy might be like really right for the role, or I'll go, no, I, don't, can't, I can't do that. Yeah. Life's too short. Uh, now, I wish that I was cool enough yes. to get away with asking this question without you realizing how excited I am about what, I'm about, get, what I'm about to get into. Jesus. Uh, your name was connected to an announcement that was made recently, and it's for the Marvel Cinematic Universe What If show. Oh, yeah. Which is an animated show that you're yeah. going to be one of the voices on. Yeah, yeah. I really want to pretend that I just kind of want to know a little bit about it. Well, I want to know everything. Uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. I don't know anything about it. They haven't told you? No, no, I don't know. They came to my house because I wasn't able to go out. They were like, well, just come to your house and record it. I was like, all right, what is it? I was really confused. And then it was explained to me what it was. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. That's all I know. Can you tell us that bit? No, that's all. I, that's all. That, that It's like, what if... I can't remember what it is. Like, if... I can't remember what... Oh, come what, on, no, Stanley, I honestly, you're killing me No, here. I swear to God, I can't remember. I can't remember what it was. The guy sort of explained it to me for a minute, and then right. I was like, oh, okay. And I said my, like, <laughs> six lines, and then he left. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I'll find out if I can. Is it crazy for you being... I love the, that stuff, though. Oh, God, yeah. The Marvel stuff? Well, this is what I was going to ask. like, addicted. For somebody who's been in the business for so many years, mm. is it insane to see this 
10-year plan play out. 22 movies, every star in Hollywood is connected to it. It's astounding. Not just the the planning of it and the complexity of it, just technically what can be done now. I mean, for me, when when they... I was directing the show on Broadway when they came to me and they said, we'd like you to do Captain America and, you know, play this. 65 year old man I was like thanks you know (laughs) (laughs) but I was like Captain America that is like the coolest thing ever because when I was a kid I had the Captain America comic books I loved Captain America and Iron Man and but a Captain America was like are you kidding me I would do this in a second (laughs) yeah and it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had and I was so sad that I died in the film because then they went on to make, you know, 18 million movies. Yeah. You know, and I was like, God damn it. Yeah. I want to be in there. You just you need know? to come back with some makeup or CG. I have to, something. They have to, please. Yeah. No, Sam Jackson's in every one of them. Sam Jackson's in everything. How does that happen? He's in every franchise. Yeah, there's more than one Sam Jackson. Yeah, it's not Tell fair. You. No, it's so not fair. Um, music's a huge part of uh, why I am the way that I am and why I am as weird looking and choose such strange wardrobe. I love it. It's a huge part of my history. But having these conversations has been a brilliant opportunity for me to find out a bit about your relationship with music. So is there a song or an artist or an album that means the world to you and why? Well, I really love the Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong stuff that they did together. You know, I told you my first wife passed away and the song that she wanted played at her funeral was What a Wonderful World. So it's probably that song that has incredible... I couldn't listen to it, actually, for a long time. Now I can listen to it, but I couldn't listen to it for a long time. Has that Louis Armstrong song taken on new meaning now? Or has it changed its meaning since? Uh, both. It's it's gotten easier to listen to. And it also... It, it's connected now, yes, to loss, but also the birth of my younger kids and that I hope that they see the world that way. Um But that song, I think, for me, is a big one. It's a great choice. Wow. Um, And is there a film that has a similar scale of meaning for you? Probably Duck Soup, the Marx Brothers movie. I did not know you were going there. Mm. Why? Why that? Is it your? Is that the birth of your love of fast? Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant political commentary and just brilliant comedy. Physical. Physical, intellectual holds up today. Just watch that movie, and it's it's. Perfect commentary on our political system. Um, well, this has been an incredible uh, experience for me. Uh, You're so kind. This has been really great for me. <laughs> I'm very happy for you with that film. That is an incredible achievement. Thank you. I mean, trying to get a movie made is like, well, it's like trying to get a movie made. Yeah. And and I'm that's wonderful. Thank you. That's so kind. That's um, wonderful. Uh, Stanley, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Road Less Traveled, brought to you by Bellstar. Listener.